Hi, welcome to episode two of the podcast that now has a name. We decided to call it Gooner U, now that I know what a Gooner is. Uh, I'm your host, Doe Frankel, and with me, as always, is Keith Altavilla. Say hello, Keith. Hello, Keith. <laughs> Nicely done. So we had an exciting match versus Fulham this past weekend. We're going to be talking about that. Uh, we're going to discuss some questions that I've now organized into a, a more well-formed list than it started out. And uh, we'll, we'll see where it goes. Uh, we've also decided we are going to try and keep these episodes 30 to 45 minutes, but don't hold us to it. We will invoke license wherever necessary. With this game on Saturday, the injuries, I was surprised by that. I don't know if you did you know that that was happening? The, um, well, the, what was there was two big injuries, right? I can't think of the one uh, defensive player's name. Um, it's the Russian name. Right. Uh, so, so yeah, the two guys who are out, uh, Thomas Party in the midfield, and since we'll we'll deal with uh, nationalities, uh, he is he is Ghanaian. So he's from Ghana. Ah. Uh, and then the other one is Oleksandr Zinchenko, who's Ukrainian. Zinchenko, right? Um, yeah, Zinchenko is Ukrainian. They were both apparently they were late injuries. I I had not been aware of those until I saw the lineup posted on Saturday. Now, granted, I was trying to I had things to do on Friday night and Saturday morning, so I was not. Tracking carefully. Uh, last I heard on Friday was that everyone was healthy. Apparently, they picked up as they picked up a knock in training. Uh, so late injuries, and so both of them were out for this one. And which so for the first time, you saw a slightly different lineup, right? Uh, which will happen again, right? And Zinchenko's absence was definitely felt. I mean, he's and it's something else that I do want to touch on at some point. But he so he's a defensive player, but he spends a lot of time towards the other team's goal. He's very instrumental in uh, in creating chances as they've trained us coaches to try and train our players to do. Um, yeah, he's a hybrid sort of defender and midfielder, so he can really play both positions. It's one of the things that was really nice about bringing him in is that he can fill in in both of those positions Is because both of the players he is essentially backing up. To a certain extent, Thomas Party or Granite Xhaka in the midfield and then Kieran Tierney at, at left back. All of them, Party and Tierney especially, have had injury troubles in the last few years, and so when they've been out, it's a real detriment to the side. And so having a guy like Zinchenko who can fill either of those positions is really quite valuable. It's just the downside is now he's the one who's hurt, which kind of ruins that, that, that possibility. So how often – so they mentioned that these players were injured in training, um, and especially this early in the season. How, how often does that happen? I've, I've mainly in, in the you know my, my limited exposure to professional sports – I would imagine, I guess they spend a lot more time training than they do uh, playing the game. So is that how it typically works? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's and that's going to be true in any sport. You have an extensive amount of time is based on practice. And it's it's a physical activity. They're running around. They're involved with each other. I, I did not quite get the nature of their injuries. They could very well just be something was tweaked and they don't feel good and it's early in the season. So it'll be precautionary. You know, one of the things you, you learn, especially as you talk to professional athletes or you sort of – when when you as the amateur go through some of the things that they do and you – you know, you, they talk about, oh, you have this injury. It's a common one for athletes. For you, you're sitting there thinking, I can't move. This is incredibly painful and for them, it's it's gutting it through. So – you know, their, their pain threshold is a lot higher than ours, mm -hmm. uh, us mortal human beings. Um, does, do people get hurt in training? Yeah, it's physical activity. Things are going to happen. 
it's not super common, but you just never know. And certain players have you know, wonky parts of their body that just don't work as well. But I think it, it doesn't sound like either of these are particularly serious. And so hopefully they will be back with the team, uh, back playing soon. Yeah, that's that's good to hear. Going through my, my notes on the match, uh, the next thing up is I, I found watching the documentary and seeing Mikel Arteta on the sidelines the last few games, I always found him to be a pretty stylish guy. This past match, I, I found two interesting things about his attire. He had a black armband over his black sweater, which seemed a little redundant, but I guess he didn't want to appear not to have the black armband in solidarity with the rest of the teammates over mourning. I forget who. Was it the same death they were mourning from the previous match? I believe so. I, I noticed they were there. I, there was someone connected to the team. Yes, the, the head groundsman, Steve Braddock. Right, the groundsman, the commentators had had mentioned that uh, pre during the previous match. And I guess he was actually, it sounds like a pioneer in the field of football groundskeeping where he pioneered techniques that a lot of the other teams are, are still using too, it seemed like. So it was more than just a personal loss for the team. Right. I, Arsenal's, especially in their old stadium, Highbury, uh, but in this one as well, in the Emirates, they're generally well regarded around the league as having one of the nicest fields uh, in the league, it's ex he considered exceptionally well-maintained. And obviously, as the groundsman, he was a big part of that. He would have been with the team for a long time. And in America, we talk about these teams as, as franchises, almost as business organizations. In, in Europe, there is a greater sense that the group is a club, uh, that you know they are all members and part of it. And so there's a, there is, to some extent, and it's slightly different, but a, a certain sense of community amongst even the support staff that goes along with the team, as well as the players themselves. Hmm. Uh, and so you know, for someone like that uh, to have died is is obviously very sad for him and his family. But the club is going to feel that as well. And the, so it's it is important for them to have those moments. And and they were. They wore the armband again because it was a home game, so it was a chance for the, the fans to sort of participate in that uh, kind of collective commemoration or collective mourning experience. Okay. Obviously, the previously at Bournemouth, here at home now, everyone gets to be a part. I'm, I'm assuming – I didn't see it on the broadcast I saw there. I'm sure there was a, a moment of silence, a round of applause. Yeah, that, that may have happened before the kickoff. Yeah, I didn't notice that either. Okay, and then so the other that the, so the black armband and the black sweater I noticed, and then I also <laughs> noticed both managers had some Ukraine pins that were heart shaped, mm -hmm. and due to a recognizing it loosely as a heart shape and b knowing by now that the Ukrainian flag has blue over yellow, <laughs> his was never upright the whole game. It started off kind of sideways. It was upside down at one point. <laughs> Did you notice? Yeah, that? I think some of that's just that they they put the pin on. And, you know, as, as the game goes on, it starts to twist around. And you're, when you're in the middle of it, you're not really paying attention to this thing you never otherwise wears. So. Oh, sure. And his arms are flailing wildly as he's trying to get everyone to, to do what, what he wants them doing. He's, he's questioning calls. Right, yeah. It comes, it comes off looking a little interesting, but I, I did not hear anything about a particular reason for wearing it for this game. But yeah. uh, that's, <laughs> that's going to be what that's all about. The, the next thing, and this is something that the commentators did mention in passing, but I found it um, surprising enough I wanted to ask you. They showed in, I guess, the owner's box up, up high up in Emirates, they showed a bunch of women, and the commentators had mentioned, I believe they said that they're in the Arsenal women's team. There's a women's Arsenal club, is that correct? Yes, it's it's all part of the larger club. There is an Arsenal women's team who is also very good. Uh, in fact, is typically among the very best in the, the women's league. Like a lot of women's leagues, there is a... 
a very wide gap between the best teams and the sort of the rest of them. Hmm. Uh, and Arsenal is one of the teams that is consistently competing for and winning titles in England. Uh, several of their players, they were honored in particular today because several of their players, including their captain, uh, played for England for the Women's European Championship this summer, which England won. Hmm. So that's part of what they're, they were being recognized for pregame and then and then to be there in the Emirates uh, and there you know they're again they're very good yeah and so the and the club is is very proud of them and 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 you know, understandably so they they are among the very best in in England and I believe they're the only English team ever to win a European championship uh, the European the women's champions league oh wow okay that was you know 10 15 years ago but yeah. certainly they have a they have a very proud history so it's not typical for them to be in the owner's box like that. They were being honored because of a championship that they won. Usually they're doing their own thing, maybe watching at home, maybe not. <laughs> right. They would have a specific, they were there for, they were specifically being honored. Uh, yeah. The, in, in terms of being in the owner's box or somewhere up in the, in the fancy seats. No, they typically would not be there except for special occasions. Right. Okay. Just talking about some of the details of the game uh, is all I really have left. Those were the uh, the only meta comments that I had. Wow, what a what a match that was! Yeah, it it was definitely it's interesting. Fulham is a team. They're they're what's called a yo yo club. Uh, they were in the championship in the second division last year, and the year before that, they were in the Premier League. In the last few years, they've been kind of up and down near the the top of one and the bottom of the other. And they, they were recently promoted. They're a bit better than Bournemouth uh, in several ways, but still not a it's still a team that Arsenal should feel pretty good about playing in general. But to their credit, Fulham came in with a plan. They have a, a really excellent player up top, Alexander Mitrovic, who's who's the one who scored their goal. They they are a team that obviously gave us problems, and we can talk about the officiating in a little bit. But they're definitely they came in, I think, with a, a desire to agitate and to you know, make some muck up the game a little bit. They're not going to allow Arsenal to be as as aggressive offensively as free-flowing. And there were plenty of stretches in the game where Arsenal had them pinned back. But you could see at times that Fulham was was able to push back and, and generate some chaos, uh, create some difficulties, take away some passing lanes. And they were able to muck up the game. And what, what was really interesting about it is that's a game that Arsenal has traditionally, especially in the last few years, really struggled to win or struggled to, to make something out of. And so it's good that they went through it this way and, and pulled out a win. I, I'm sure they mentioned it in the broadcast, you know, when they went down a goal last season, Arsenal only won a single game all year where they gave up the first goal when they trailed. I noticed that that seemed very uncommon across the games that I've seen. That that did seem like a death knell as soon as they, as soon as they were down. Is that common in general or is that an Arsenal thing? Well, so it, it really, it, it, uh, and a lot of it stems from Arsenal's expectations. A club like Arsenal is a team that expects to be near the top of the league, will win game, you know, to win a lot of games, and you're going to go behind. I mean, Manchester City is still the favorites for the title and they have trailed at multiple occasions it happens right. now, Manchester City has so much firepower it doesn't really matter Liverpool can go behind and can score three goals uh, very quickly and so in, this, in most cases yes if you go up the first goal you're in big trouble but if you're a team like Arsenal you don't want to be like most teams you want to be a team that can contend for the title and you will have moments like we saw with 
with Gabriel and, and Mitrovic, you're going to have moments where you screw up. And and even though you're dominating the game, you're suddenly down 1-0, and it's how you respond to that. And Arsenal, because as we talked about last time, struggled to score goals last year, you go down a goal and it becomes really difficult. Daunting, yeah. They're doing much better offensively this year, and so they went down and were able to claw their way back in it. And that kind of you know mental fortitude, that's some of that gets a little overplayed but it, it was really good to see. And you could see how exciting it was, certainly for the players, for the fans. Uh, you know, they, there really was a lot in that. Oh, I know how excited I was. I mean, when they came <laughs> back from being behind, wow. <laughs> I hope I didn't wake anybody else up. I was watching, I was watching the game pretty late. So, so you mentioned the officiating, and that was actually the next thing on my list to talk about was one, one thing in particular, and feel free to opine on the officiating in general, but one particular thing I had a question on was, so there was that injury of Mitrovic midway through, mm-hmm. and it seemed strange. He, wasn't playing, but he was standing on the sidelines and he ended up coming back. And that was confusing. I didn't know what was going on there. Right. As most most of our listeners were going to be Americans, if you ask Americans, what are the things they don't like about soccer? We don't like the diving. We don't like the rolling around, the faking injuries. Yeah. And 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 officials know that Europeans don't like that generally. I mean, nobody likes that. And so there is an effort. There are rules. If a medical staff has to come out and give you treatment on the field, you have to come off the field at least oh, temporarily. Okay. And so it's meant to discourage that. Like if you're hurt, okay, someone will take care of you, but you can't just pop up as if nothing happened. And so he has to step off onto the sideline, especially if he's undergoing treatment. You'll see this a lot. When you have players with open wounds, you'll see guys who get cut. They'll maybe start bleeding. They can't stay on the field when you have blood like that. So they'll have to be taken off. They'll finish their treatment, and then the the trainer and the player are there, and they'll yell at the referee, and the and the referee thinks they've been off long enough, and they're convinced, okay, you're you're okay. <laughs> they will wave the player back on, and he comes back onto the field. But in that okay. stretch, that minute or two, you're going to be down a man, and you're playing ten against eleven. Right. Okay. Yeah. That that explains it fully. Thank you. What else? So, the, yeah, the officiating was contentious. I noticed that there was a bunch of times where there were players writhing around on the field and they did not stop play. It kept on going and they had to get back up and start mm-hmm. moving around again. What, what else was there that, that you picked up on? The injuries, I think, and, and what we talked about really goes into uh, what's interesting about how soccer is officiated and how uh, I think a difference in the way we think about officiating in the U.S. versus in Europe. Soccer is very loosely officiated. The referee has a tremendous amount of discretion in what happens on the field you know with stoppage time at the end of the half it's about four minutes or about however much time a time that has no connection to how long the ball was actually out of play or anything like that okay it's surprisingly loose uh you know the referee has discretion okay when he thinks you're ready to come back on the field okay now you can come back onto the field american sports are almost overruled if you look at say the rule book for american football it looks like an act of congress it's enormous there are rules for every possible situation soccer has they call them the law laws of the game, there's a lot of gray area in all of them. And Mm. so the referee has a tremendous amount of discretion in what happens. Sometimes it generates a lot of controversy, like we talked about there with the injuries. There are rules in place where if the referee suspects it's a head injury, and that's been a very recent change, that the referee can stop play and bring treatment on immediately or as quickly as possible. That happened during this game. We had a head-to-head collision, yeah. Right, and you know, those are kind of always kind of frightening, and there was blood. And if there is a suspicion of a head injury, the referee is supposed to stop the game, the trainers come out, and and they'll pause. Any other injury, the referee has discretion. 
if it's behind the play and the play is going forward, the referee can decide to, for things to keep going. As long as there wasn't a foul, which of course means you have to stop. But actually, I say that even then there isn't. So imagine, you know, we're painting pictures in our mind here. Players running forward with the ball. As he makes the pass, a guy slides in and takes him out. Clear and obvious foul. They won't actually stop the game at that point. What they'll do is the referee will watch. If he completes the pass and say it's Arsenal, they're continuing the offensive play forward. He'll do what's called play advantage. He, at his discretion, he can say it would be detrimental to Arsenal to stop the play right now. And you'll see them. They'll, they'll point both of their arms forward. Hmm. And that what they're doing is they're saying there was a foul there, but it's more advantageous for you to keep the ball and go forward. And again, that's all the referee's decision. He decides that by himself whether or not that's appropriate or whether or not that should be done. Right, and I, I remember at least one occasion in, in this previous match where there was a foul that occurred and he waited until after there was an attempt on goal that failed or something where it clearly had some impact on the play at hand before he intervened was what it seemed right. like. Yeah. Right. And that is, again, at his discretion, if he feels it would be detrimental to the team that was fouled to stop play or if he feels, the you know, the player is hurt behind the play and it's not affecting what's going on, then he'll he'll just let it play and go back and call the foul or give a card later. Right. Circling back to the head injuries for a minute. So as mentioned in the previous episode, I am a youth soccer coach. My son is five years old. He's playing in the U6 division. So it's the real little kids where they're barely even playing soccer <laughs> at this point. But I still have to do all the training that all the coaches for the older kids do. The training program that we use is run by U.S. Soccer and uh, Safe Sport. So there's training videos that are a major component of that. And they are really rigorous about concussion training. That is a big part of it. And I, I learn different things each time, even though the videos, if not identical, are at least very similar to each other. Uh, one thing that I really picked up on a lot this time is the nature of concussions in soccer. I had gone into it hearing before, potentially inaccurately, but hearing at least that that concussions are actually a bigger part of soccer than they are a part of American football. But it doesn't get the attention that American football does. What I had assumed is that that was from heading the ball. You know, the ball can be traveling pretty quickly and you're hitting it with your head and you're not wearing a helmet. That that made sense. What it actually seemed like, which I found interesting this time, is that the concussion risk is really when two players' heads touch each other because then they're really hard and unyielding, uh, whereas a soccer ball does have some give to it. And, and it's just that there's way more likelihood of head-to-head -head collisions when two players are each trying to head the same ball and you're not wearing helmets. That's why I don't know. I can't confirm whether that was true, that it is actually more prevalent in soccer than American football, but that there is some truth, at least to the heading causing injuries. It's just the heads on each other, not on the ball. Okay. I mean, you know, as someone who is not involved in coaching, I've, I've never seen those videos. And that's very interesting that that's the message they give. I know there are rules in some countries, I think like England is one of them at where at lower levels, they won't allow players to, to do heading. Oh, yeah. They, they, it's banned because they, you know, because there were, especially, especially at that age and the, the softness of their skulls and all that. Yeah. No, it's, it's not necessarily the skulls are any softer. I, once, once a kid is like definitely two years old and sometime between one and two, the, the skull plates are fused and the skull is pretty much fine from that point forward, but the brain is still developing and there isn't enough science yet to say that heading the ball is safe. So the guidelines that we were given is 
up until I believe it was age 14. It's certainly long enough. I don't need to worry about it with my son or the, his cohort that I'm coaching for a while, but I believe it was around age 14 is when they can start heading it. And then it's limited. The guidance is something like three headers a week or something like that. You're supposed to be counting how many times the kids head the ball until they turn 18 or 20. And it's at a certain point you don't care anymore. And they're adults and generally there isn't necessarily definitive science on it there yet either, whether you do have sub concussion events that do lead to CTE, that's chronic traumatic encephalitis. I believe it is. There isn't enough science to say whether or not that definitely does or does not cause that yet. So they're saying, well, okay, we don't know. We'll, we'll assume it's safe for now, basically. So getting back to the match for a minute, I was blown away seeing Leno. Uh, Leno, Leno, it's, it's German, so I guess it's Leno. I'm used to Jay Leno on, on the American Airwaves. That's usually how I hear it pronounced, is Leno. So Leno, seeing him in goal for another team where we discussed briefly our first time around after watching the All or Nothing Arsenal documentary that... He seemed to me to be a piss poor goalie and just judging by the documentary alone and whatever bias that implies, uh, Ramsdale came in and really brought things around. It seemed like a turning point when they brought him in and they went from four straight losses to all of a sudden start winning games again. So I had a fairly poor opinion of Leno, but I will say in this past match, he was absolutely Fulham's MVP. He had a bunch of really good saves. He was really on top of things. And he really is, you know, the, the limited exposure you would have gotten to him was it was a particularly rough moment. As we talked about it, Arsenal as a team was overwhelmed in those games. Uh, Leno's strength is as a shot stopper. He's excellent at making saves, which it sounds so straightforward. Well, isn't that the job of a keeper? Well, the big advantage that a guy like Ramsdale has is, is in the modern game, there's a much greater emphasis placed on not just the keeper as someone who saves goals, but also what he does with the ball afterwards, his mm-hmm. distribution, making passes out of the back. In particular, Ramsdale's very good at what they call the command of the box. And so you'll see on, say, a corner when the ball swings in, Ramsdale is very good at taking charge of the situation, going after the ball, getting it. And Leno at times, at times, could be could seem a little bit more hesitant. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that allowed balls to get in and chances to go on goal that maybe shouldn't have been there a more aggressive keeper would have dealt with. Uh, so Ramsdale brings a lot of other strengths in, but Leno is, is a, is a, was a really good keeper. Basically what happened is over the summer, Arsenal made a move. They uh, signed another backup keeper, actually an American, Matt Turner, Hmm. uh, from, who played it, played for New England, went to Fairfield University in Connecticut. Okay. He has now been signed by Arsenal. He's now their backup. If you're Leno, Leno has – he probably won't – well, he probably won't start but has reason to believe he might be able to make the German national team for the World Cup later this year. To do that, you need playing time. Fulham needed a keeper. Arsenal wasn't going to play him, so they made a deal. Fulham gave Arsenal some money, and Leno's now – uh, playing for Fulham. And uh, uh, like with any sport, the more you watch, you know, it, it feels weird at first to see players in other teams' uniforms or he used to be on our team, but that's just that's just how it goes. Uh, yeah, he's he's an excellent he is a, he's a really excellent shot stopper, uh, you know, a very solid keeper. But in a sense, Arsenal needed to do go in a slightly different direction in several ways. And that was Aaron Ramsdale. Um, and I don't think there's any hard feelings, certainly among the club about about Leno. And, and how he left. I don't think anybody's particularly bothered. You know, and, and it helps. He knows all of these guys. I mean, he, he, sure. he practiced against these guys for, for several years. And sure. so 
you know, it, that's an advantage that he's going to have. And that's just, again, that's just the way it goes sometimes. Would you characterize the difference in play style between Leno and Ramsdale as Leno holding back closer to the goal more, where I see Ramsdale coming out pretty far quite frequently? It could be. Some of that is also going to be how they're coached. You know, Arteta wants the keeper to be up and moving. What you'll really notice the big difference is you'll watch how many times Ramsdale will play the ball with his feet. Mm-hmm. And you yeah. see the center backs passing to him and him distributing to them or occasionally, you know, pushing it forward. And he's much better at that than Leno is. And, you you know, it's a different game because Fulham doesn't really play that way. They were under pressure. If they were trying to make those passes back, they could probably wind up in a lot of trouble from, from Arsenal's pressing. So you're not going to see that same kind of play, but it doesn't fit Leno's style or his strengths. And so it's not something they need to worry about as much. Hmm. OK, yeah. So there's a, there is a tactical element to that as well. So, yeah, I, I guess uh, my my last note about the game was the one goal that I found kind of funny was the second one that deflected off of a butt and a hand before going into the goal. That was quite something to see. They call it the mixer, that sort of area where all the players <laughs> converge. And, you know, talk about guys being aggressive. I, I won't say this is Leno not being aggressive, but, you know, ideally as a defensive team, you want someone to step up and really push the ball away or in the case of the keeper, take command and either grab it or maybe just punch it away so that it's out of that box. Right. Leno doesn't get to it. It starts deflecting off of different players. And once it starts doing that, it can go in all kinds of directions. It winds up in a place where Gabriel is able to get a foot on it, push it into the goal, and, you know, Arsenal's up. Sure. So, yeah, you want those kind. Sometimes, sometimes you need a little chaos. Yeah, and I was also impressed. My God, Martinelli, who's... I'm pretty sure I'd, I'd consider him to be my favorite Arsenal player at this point. Martinelli, I was impressed as hell. And I don't think that this is particular to him. I, I'm pretty sure it's just a common part of professionals playing soccer. But the way he's able to go from a corner kick that curves so much that it is basically capable of going into the goal on its own. And then you want your teammates to help you uh, get it in after that. But that was just, he had at least one that I remember one amazing kick out of the corner. There's, uh, there's a lot of strategy built into corners. There's really considered two different styles and it basically goes with where the ball is, is moving in swingers or out swingers and in swinger will cut curve in towards the goal. The out swinger will of course curve away from it. Uh, There are instances of players scoring directly from corners. It's called an Olympico. It's one of those kind of wild, crazy, oh, my goodness, that just (laughs) happened moments. But it's very difficult to do. I think Arsenal almost had one, I think, in this game. That's what, yeah, that's what I was remembering. It almost went in. Yeah, it was, it was crazy that it could have. I think, I, I forget how it managed not to, but it was very close to being able to. And, and and a lot of that is just a tactical decision. I mean, Arsenal, some teams are starting to do this. Arsenal's one of them have a, a separate a set piece coach. So any of those dead ball plays, free kicks, corners, things like that are called set, you know, have set pieces where they essentially are running plays. Arsenal, there's a lot of them. They'll play the short corner. So rather than pounding it into the box, they'll play it short to a guy who's standing right next to it. And now your, your cross is coming in from a slightly different position. And now everybody's positions are adjust. The defense maybe gets unsettled. So you try to do different things, mix things up and, and you'll see those develop. If you see a case where a guy is suddenly free and clear on goal on one of those plays, that's probably probably a set play that's probably designed for him to be in that position oh, okay that's cool yeah I'll, I'll look out for that and and it also just comes down to as we saw there the style of kick you know they're they've made a decision they've they've called a play in to say okay we're gonna run this one this time 
And they, the okay, everybody knows, okay, the ball's going to swing in. I'm going here. He's going here. And there's, there's a, a set they're following. Now, when you say they've called in the play, this gets to one of my larger questions I've had about how the game is played. Who is making that call? And if I may guess, it sounds like that's something the captain would possibly be doing. Uh, that's going to be team dependent. Some of it could be Arteta or the set piece coach from the sidelines. You'll see Arteta up, but every once in a while you will see the other, some of the assistants getting up and, and shouting things and they're giving individual instructions. Some of them might be getting up in those set pieces. Uh, some of it could be the players on the field and it's not necessarily the captain's choice, uh, it, it, but I'm sure there are players on the field who are, They've clearly worked it out. If it's being called on the field, somebody know, they know who's making that decision or who right. decides, and then they shout it out to each other. So, so, so all these things being shouted out in the open just makes me think of the contrast with other sports like baseball and American football, where in American football, I'm pretty sure the quarterback has a headset in his helmet where he's able to communicate with the coaching staff, right? Well, at least he can hear the coaching staff. Right. So in those cases, what happens is the co- the call goes into the quarterback and that's so they can, that's so the quarterback can hear it. Right. There's no, so there's no question about what's been said. Right. And because if you look at American football plays, they're, they're about 10 wor- random words strung together and so he goes into the huddle gives the play to the the guys there then when they break it and they go out to the line you'll see the quarterbacks there they're shouting things they're pointing at players but it's all in code right so you what you hear is you you know peyton manning was famous for yelling omaha omaha as he points to somebody the plays have names like spider 2xy banana right (laughs) <laughs> and all of those, each of those words in their sequence means something as players. You listen for different things, and that's what you do. And eventually, maybe you'll crack that code as a defender, but it's all happening within the space of five seconds. And so you have to sure. adjust. And you're not really listening to what they're saying as much as you are. You have your play, and you're also pointing out certain guys as well. Okay, I'm covering this guy. I'm covering this guy. Um, so a lot of that is actually out in the open. We don't hear it as much on TV because yeah, of, just because really of the distance all. there. Yeah. Um, but it's the same kind of thing. Guys are shouting all sorts of stuff. If you watch Arteta, and you can see some of what he's shouting, but also you can see him pointing. Sometimes his just thing is, play inside, play inside. Mm. There's nothing, oh, I heard him say that. Okay, like what am I supposed to do <laughs> as, as a player on another team? What do I do with that? I don't know. Well, yeah, and so I'm, I'm imagining the, the contrast between in a soccer match, everything's being shouted out in the open, and like Football, you have the headset that the coach can communicate to the quarterback over. And then in baseball, you used to have the hand signals with the catcher communicating to the pitcher. And now you have an even more complicated system there where the catcher has some electronic device that he's able to press buttons on that then communicates to an earpiece that the pitcher is wearing, where it's like they're, they're getting so far away from anyone being able to ever read signals that it's it's even more challenging. Right. And and we'll, we'll stay away from the details on this. There was a, a rather major scandal a couple of years ago involving the stealing of signs. Right. I remember uh, And that, using yes. video technology and all sorts of things. And that kind of freaked a lot of people out. And, and you know, baseball has its own weird traditions in terms terms of signs and what they mean and who's doing what. And I mean, yeah, baseball is rather famous for their elaborate hand signals, touching their nose and their ears yep. and wiping across <laughs> their shoulders. And that's that's just, you know, all of these sports are a cent- over a century old. And so they just develop their own ways of communicating. Some embrace technology in different ways, especially, you know, American football does a lot of that with technology and baseball's moving in that direction. You know, soccer is a little harder because, you know, nobody's wearing a headset out right. there. So, but 
you know, so everybody's, you know, you're shouting instructions at your players. The other coach manager is shouting instructions at his players at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, right. you can, again, you can hear those things, but what do they really mean to you? You know, they're not making massive tactical shifts right. in those. In isolation, certainly. I mean, if you heard the same thing over and over again, as soon as you hear it a couple times and you're able to put together what happened after you heard it the first time, maybe you start to get a picture but yeah yeah i see what you're maybe saying. yeah maybe, maybe but at the same time remember you hear him say that okay did he say that before i don't know i was telling my guys <laughs> right. to do something as well so you know what are you who's what are you listening to at that moment yeah that's true so uh so do you have any more thoughts on the fulham match it was fun they need to play a lot better it's they call it sort of the kind of game kind of a coach's dream and that you won but there are things to work on you know again <laughs> fulham is a team that's probably going to be a, a little bit closer to the bottom of the table that's you know and and you're going to have games like that it's you don't want to overreact to it this doesn't mean we're not you know we're we're going to we're going to finish mid table or anything we we won which is great we're the only team in the league that hasn't dropped any points yet right you know it's it's going to start getting interesting going forward it was good that they pulled out the results, but, you know, particularly the replacement players, Tierney and Mohamed Elneny, you know, you could see the difference in the way they played. And, uh, you know, Party was a big was a big absence. Uh, Zinchenko certainly was noticeable by his absence as well. So, you know, it's the kind of thing. You're going to have those injuries. You're not going to get your best lineup every time. And so they're just going to have to adjust and, and figure out how best to play with those guys or without those other guys. Oh, by the way, um, not directly pertinent to this match, but pertinent to this match week. The commentators mentioned, uh, I believe it was Liverpool versus Bournemouth. Liverpool scored nine goals against them. Yes. Yeah, Liverpool is one of the best teams in the league. They've struggled a bit to start the season. Last week, they they were upset by Manchester United, who is a, a longtime bitter rival of theirs. A team they are drastically better than overall. And so I think Bournemouth got a very angry Liverpool team. <laughs> they got a, they faced a, te- a Liverpool team that had a point to make, and they made it quite emphatically. <laughs> Moving past the current match and going to me playing catch-up now, uh, the first thing I wanted to ask you, I didn't uh, think to ask you last time, have you ever seen a... A Premier League match in person or an Arsenal match in person or American soccer, what what have you seen in the stadium as far as soccer goes? Okay, I've I've seen uh, a handful of the U.S. national team. I've seen them play a couple times in, uh, I think I've been in Hartford, Foxborough. I've seen them in Houston. Uh, so I've seen them the national team a couple of times. I was, before I came down to Houston for the first year and a half of their existence, so 2015 into 2016, I was a season ticket holder for New York City out of uh, Major League Soccer, the American League, uh, playing in Yankee Stadium. Hmm. Uh, It was a good time. It was fun. So I saw a lot of games there, saw a lot of really good players there, uh, including a few who are in the Premier League now, which or used to be in the Premier League, which is kind of fun. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, as far as Premier League, I only attended one Premier League game. I've only been to London the one time uh, when I did the few months there on the study abroad. And it's, it's appropriate you ask this question this week because the one team I saw play was Fulham. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I went to Fulham's uh, stadium. It's a very old ground called Craven Cottage. Uh, there is a small cottage there on the corner. It dates back to the early 20th century when the, they first built a stadium at the site. It houses the team's offices and whatnot. Uh, it's definitely a very old school kind of ground. You know, Arsenal's, the Emirates Stadium is a very modern, it, it, you know, it would fit in, say, the National Football League or in, uh, 
you know, in an American sporting league, it's a very new modern stadium. It was built in 2006. It actually opened the, in 2006, right after I left. Hmm. Uh, a lot of them are along the lines of Fulham, or we saw a Bournemouth's ground last week, or Crystal Palace at Selhurst Park. Uh, so a lot of them are that kind of smaller, more intimate settings, and and Craven Cottage was like that. Um, okay. It was much cheaper ticket, uh, so we went as a study group. I have not been to, I have not yet seen Arsenal play. I almost went this summer. They were doing a tour. Uh, they did a few games in the U.S. Uh, and I was talking to a friend in the D.C. area about going to the game in Baltimore, but that it with that ended up falling through for various oh, okay. reasons. Uh, so I've never actually seen Arsenal play directly. Um, which is disappointing, but hopefully someday. Yeah, yeah. If they're in the U.S., you know, definitely uh, we'll talk about that. That sounds like it would be a fun trip to do together. So I didn't realize that they played in the U.S. But for you, I'll throw in, you know, if you're looking for matches in, in person, a Major League Soccer season is ongoing. There are two teams. I know you're in New York. There's two teams in the New York area. Um, uh, New York City, my, my team plays most of their games in Yankee Stadium, but a handful of other places because of the Yankees also need to use Yankee Stadium. There is the other one is the New York Red Bulls, who actually play in what's called Harrison, New Jersey, <laughs> which is really just Newark. Uh, yeah. but they don't want to say Newark. <laughs> um, that is upper crust. Sound it's, like it's, it's 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 <laughs> on the other side of the highway. It's very it's very close to the Meadowlands to uh, to MetLife Stadium and yeah. and where the the Giants and the Jets play. Uh, Red Bull Arena is just, I've never been. It's supposed to be a very nice arena, but is in not a particularly great section of town. Also, Red Bulls are terrible, and you should never like them. <laughs> New York is blue. Uh, there is also, I should say, a smaller team uh, in Kingston, a lower-level team actually in Kingston, which might be another interesting experience. May or may not be easier for you to get to. Definitely uh, easier, yeah. I'll have to check that out. Um, what I was going to ask about, now, it's not as crazy to me as it could potentially be to have a soccer team playing inside a baseball stadium, only because uh, my family is originally from the Chicago area, and I'd heard stories from my grandfather taking my dad when he was little to see the Chicago Bears playing in Wrigley Field, which is where they played until Soldiers Field was built. So it's, it's not crazy to me, but I'm just curious, knowing Yankee Stadium decently well, how do they orient the pitch there? Uh, it ran from uh, one goal was essentially leading towards uh, just past the first baseline toward the dugout on the first base side. And then the other goal reached across to uh, the left field bleachers, which is where okay. I sat. I sat behind one of the goals in the left field bleachers. I was in the supporter section, so we were standing and, and chanting throughout much of the game. <laughs> Um, okay. I, you know, if you're going yourself, it could be an interesting experience. If you're bringing your son with you, I would get a real ticket and go sit somewhere. Um, right. <laughs> in addition to his height and having trouble seeing, uh, you know, it is a, it's, it's the bleachers at Yankee stadium. The language is not family friendly. <laughs> yeah. Just a, just a fair warning. I know we're keeping it family friendly here on this podcast. I feel we're I should just best, let yeah. it know. <laughs> Okay, so it's, so it's kind of oriented diagonally, running parallel mm -hmm. to the first baseline and then extending outward from there. Okay. We're going into MLS a little too much. There, there is a lot of consternation. It is, you know, soccer fields don't actually have a standardized size. Like, say, oh, that's uh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, what they basically have is a range. They're allowed to be a minimum of this size and a maximum of this size. The field at Yankee Stadium is officially it is the minimum size allowed by by FIFA and the laws of the game. Okay. That's a good open question whether it's really actually that big. <laughs> We're not really sure. It depends about on that. who's holding the tape measure. 
It is it is probably a little smaller than regulation. Uh, okay. It's a little tight in some ways, and it is you, you, if you watch a game compared to in there compared to say in another stadium, you'll notice the difference. New York City's field is small; things move around very quickly. Uh, a little about roller derby or pinball, as opposed to other teams will play in much more spacious ground, and it it affects the way you play in terms of movement sure. and, and tactical decisions. Yeah, it would have to. Yeah. So we are running a little bit low on time, but there's one really important thing that I need to ask you about because I really do feel like it's affecting my ability to follow the game as it transpires, which is I have absolutely no idea what the rules are regarding offsides, and it's it's becoming a problem. Can you help me? <laughs> help me, please. <laughs> You have you've picked like the how much time do we have? We may need another episode. It's not that bad. We don't need another episode. So okay. This is from the laws of the game. This is FIFA's rules. A player is in an offside position if any part of the head, body, or feet is in the opponent's half, excluding the halfway line, and any part of the head, body, or feet is nearer to the opponent's goal line than both the ball and the second to last opponent. Both the ball and the second-to-last opponent. Now, okay, so the goalie is one opponent. Well, yeah, let me let me follow up with that. Yeah. So it is, it's a rule meant to prevent cherry-picking from a guy stationed behind the defense and just sort of waiting for a pass to come to him. Okay. Now, obviously, that. since it's been in the rule books since the beginning of time, or at least as far as the sport is concerned— Really what it comes down to and the way you'll see it play out in, in a game that you're watching in the Premier League is about player positioning relative to passes. The idea is that it is based on your position when the ball is played to you. So you're going to be ahead of the ball. You're going to be closer to the goal than the ball is. That makes sense. They're passing sure. it forward to you. You cannot be basically a part of your body that could score a goal. So your hand could be forward, mm -hmm. and that's okay. But your shoulder, you can hit the ball off your shoulder, your head, your feet, you know, pretty much anything in your body other than your your arms. They have to be behind. You'll sometimes hear it as the last defender. Now, as you as sort of pointed out there, you're right. They actually say it's the second to last opponent. The keeper is generally assumed to be one. And right. so you're always judging offside based on the last the last defensive player. So if I were to restate it in what seems a little bit more obvious a manner to me, and I realize that the laws of a game are, in fact, written in legalese so as to be interpreted only precisely one way. <laughs> no, that is definitely not true. But anyway, continue. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, that's to me the way it should be, <laughs> I guess. So it sounds to me like you can't pass the ball to a player who is the closest man on the field to the goalkeeper. Like you can't pass it past other players on the opposing team to somebody who's ready to score a goal basically, but you can dribble it there. If you start off and you break away and you dribble it past, you can be the only person, but you can't have it passed to you. Is, is that right? Well, it has to do with your position at the time the pass is made. Right. And you'll see some of these players will make a through ball. It'll go through the defenders and go to an open space behind them. As long as you're behind those defenders, you can run through, beat them to it, and be free and clear as long as you are behind those de that last defender when the pass is made. And you'll see that you'll, when these instances come up, when they start looking at this through through the video assistant referee, the VAR, yeah. they will look and try to stop, pinpoint the exact moment first when the pass is made. When does the ball leave the guy's foot? And then the target, where is that going? Now, you could be in an offside position, but if the ball goes to somebody else, everything's fine. Right. 
unless – and this is, again, we get to gray areas. And if you actually read Rule 11, which is offside, there's actually a lot to it. You can have an instance where I'm behind the last defender and I'm screening the keeper, but the pass goes to somebody else. But the referee can say you were in an offside position. The keeper had to adjust to you being there. That's not fair. That violates the spirit of the rule. It's offside, even if the players touching the ball were onside. Interesting. So you don't necessarily even have to be the leading player on your team. There could be someone on your own team ahead of you when you take possession and you could still be in violation of offsides. Well, no, in that case, if you're behind the ball, you're fine. The ball is the fo- the ball, and the last defender are the lines everyone's judging. It's where you are relative to those things. If the ball's in front of you, closer to the goal, you are onside. Okay. And what you'll notice, so two things I'll, I'll say to that. One, the reason you write it as the second-to-last defender, you will see on occasion some of those goal line scrums we talked about. You will have players in offside positions, and you look and say, wait a minute, no, there's, the, a, there's a defender behind him. What's the problem? There's only one defender. The keeper is further out because of what was happening. Hmm. There needs to be two defenders, and you, you, we always assume the keeper's there, but in this case he wasn't, so there's only one. And so okay. you will see goals in tight pulled back for offside. Which annoys everybody because they forget that's the way the rule is written. The other thing I'll add is you cannot be offside if you receive the ball from a goal kick, a throw-in, or a corner kick. Hmm. So on those particular dead ball plays, you are you can run anywhere you want and receive the ball when it's passed. Those are those are there's no offside there. Oh, that's definitely good to know, and it, it makes sense too. I can see from a gameplay standpoint why the rule would be written that way. That that. Okay. Yeah, I and mean, especially you'll see it a lot on throw-ins. Uh, you, you wonder, why was he allowed to get the ball? Because throw, offside doesn't count on throw-ins. Mm-hmm. Okay. I've got a tenuous grasp on it. I may ask clarifying questions as it comes up in the next match, and I try <laughs> applying my tenuous understanding to it. I do recall, actually, I think in this previous match, the one play I was talking about where it stood out to me as the referee didn't look into further whether there was a violation until after a goal was scored is I think it was after... I forget if it was the first or the second Arsenal goal where they then checked for offsides after the goal was scored. I think it was the second one that came from the corner kick. Well, no, I guess that couldn't have been because it was a dead ball. Never mind. Yeah, but no, there was <laughs> there was a check, though, for that goal. What I believe they were checking there was a handball. Oh, that's right. For that one, they were checking the handball. That's right. Right, and and what they'll rule is, and again, here's where we get to gray areas. You, The ball can actually hit players in the, in the hand or in the arm as long as their arm in what's believed to be a natural position. Right. And that usually applies more to defenders. You'll see them, you know, penalties awarded. If your arm's close to your body or in what looks like a natural position, it hits your hand. The referee says, no, that's what what's he supposed to do with his arm. But exactly, if your arm's yeah. stretched out and it hits you then, uh-uh, that's, that's going to be a penalty. The rule is that you can't use your arm to manipulate the ball. But if the arm, if the ball hits your arm, then sure. Well, that's, that's, yeah. the, that's, no, the, that's the spirit of the rule. Yeah. The actual rule itself exactly. talks yeah. about you, the position of the arm. And they're supposed to, there's some judgment of involved in whether or not it was quote-unquote intentional, but judging intent is is madness. Exactly, yeah. I'm, I'm only speaking to the spirit of the law, which is how I generally try to think of rules and laws in general, is I try to think in terms of the spirit of it and apply apply it that way, but yeah. And that's and that's really how it, how a lot of these rules are are interpreted. There is a lot of gray area here, and it goes back to the beginning. The referee has a tremendous amount of discretion, and you know, obviously you try to limit that. Some rules like offside are actually quite clear, but you have to make sure that but once you get away from that that clarity there is a lot of there's a lot of room for interpretation on the referee's part I think that's probably good. We've run a little bit long this time um but I think it was good it was some good discussion i had had fun uh, uh and uh 
I think that'll do it for this time. Anything else you wanted to touch on? Uh, just just real quick, you know, as I, we talked about last time, uh, games are going to start coming quick and fast. Arsenal's right. two games coming up this week. We are home to Aston Villa, which is a game that should go okay, but we'll see how they rotate the squad after with the with the midweek game, the short break. And then a really big one on Sunday, uh, Arsenal will play Manchester United. We go up to Old Trafford and play them on the road. Should be a lot of fun, but uh, I will feel much happier when that game is over and we've gotten points of some kind. I'll just leave yeah, it definitely. That. Yeah, and uh, just a note to listeners, we intend to record weekly even during weeks when there are multiple matches. So uh, we're recording this on August 29th. Uh, we will have another recording sometime next week that will cover both matches uh, during the weekend on the weekend. So you can look for those. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Go you gunners!